I Take History With My Coffee podcast, Episode 5, The Armadas of Zhang He. From the time when we, Zhang He and his companions, at the beginning of the Young Lo period, received the Imperial Commission as envoys to the barbarians, up till now seven voyages have taken place, and each time we have commanded several tens of thousand government soldiers and more than a hundred ocean-going vessels. Starting from Taicheng and taking the sea, we have by way of the countries of Champa, Siam, Java, Chochin, and Calicut, reached Hormuz and other countries of the western regions. From a stone marker erected March 31, 1431, at a temple north of Shanghai, at the mouth of the Yangtze River. Welcome back to the I Take History With My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. It must have been an impressive sight to see the Chinese fleet sail into one's harbor. There would have been hundreds of boats, massive junks, perhaps hundreds of feet long and with six to nine masts, were accompanied by a multitude of smaller vessels that carried soldiers, government officials, horses, supplies, and gifts from the Chinese emperor. It was an unmistakable show of both the power and the magnificence of imperial China. For a brief moment in the early 15th century, China established itself as a great power and brought the entire Indian Ocean under its influence. China was on the cusp of launching the Age of Discovery and globalization. Back in the 13th century, the Mughal Emperor Kublai Khan promoted a policy of tribute to bring neighboring states into the Chinese sphere of influence. Government representatives, accompanied by military force, were dispatched to bring gifts to foreign courts and bring back envoys to the imperial court. The envoys performed the ritualized bowing the head until it touches the floor, the katao or katao. Afterward, there would be an exchange of envoys, agreements on trade, and promises of mutual aid if needed. In 1368, the first Ming dynasty emperor, Hung Wu, defeated the Mongols and claimed the throne. Though he limited overseas contact, he did continue the tribute policies of his Mongol predecessors. Ambassadors were sent out to secure the tribute and acknowledgement of the emperor's legitimacy from the many vassal states in Southeast Asia, Brunei, Cambodia, Vietnam, the Philippines. During this time, the Chinese were able to drive the Mongols out of much of Western China and back into Central Asia. Many boys were captured in the region, castrated, and sent to Ming courts as eunuchs. One of these boys 
was Ma He. He was born in 1371 to a family of wealthy Muslim merchants in the province of Yunnan in southwest China. His father, and probably his grandfather as well, had taken the pilgrimage to Mecca. This, along with their role as merchants, possibly gave the young Mahi a glimpse of the wider world beyond his home. When he was 10 years old, the Chinese army invaded Yunnan in order to suppress Mongol loyalists in the province. Mahi was captured, castrated, and then presented to be a member of the household of the Ming prince Zhu Di, one of Hongwu's children. Ma He distinguished himself in the service of Prince Zhu Di. He grew into an imposing figure, reportedly close to seven feet tall, with a loud, booming voice. His reputation as a military commander and a diplomat enabled him to rise quickly to become one of the prince's closest advisors. When Hung Wu died in 1398, his grandson was made emperor. At the urging of the powerful faction of Confucian bureaucrats at the court, the new emperor sought to restrain the influence of the court eunuchs, as well as the power of his uncles. This led to Prince Zhu Di seizing control of much of the Ming army in northern China. This led to three years of civil war. Prince Zhu Di captured the Ming capital of Nanjing in 1402. The former imperial palace had been burned down, and it was presumed that the prince's nephew, his nephew's consort, and their son had perished in the fire. Zhu Di declared himself emperor, took the name Yunglu, and established Beijing as the new imperial capital. For his faithful role in the Civil War, Ma He was given a new name, Zheng He, and awarded the command of the Ming Navy. Though he desired to restrict private trade, the young Lo Emperor also wished to exert Chinese control over the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. His reign saw the conquest of Vietnam and the establishment of a new sultanate in Malacca, one favorable to China. Malacca was at the strategic location that leaked the trade from Southeast Asia to India. Young Lo decided to launch a massive fleet. It would be a display of China's military power in the region. It would also be a way to create trading partnerships and forge alliances against the rising power of the Timurids in Central Asia. But more importantly, Young Lo wished to renew the tribute system. Such tributes and endorsements from foreign states would lend needed legitimacy to his reign in the face of the opposition from the conservative Confucian bureaucrats in the government. Zheng He was the natural choice to lead this armada. He had shown his loyalty to the emperor. He knew many of the Asian languages as well as had knowledge of classic literature. Though born a Muslim, 
he is thought to have practiced Buddhism and even participated in the detailed ritual sacrifice to the deity that protected sailors. His eclectic worldview made him perfect to lead a mission as a representative of the imperial court. The ships were constructed at a shipyard in Najing and then floated down to the mouth of the Yangtze River. Shipwrights and other craftsmen were recruited from the coastal provinces. At the time, most ocean-going vessels had flat-bottomed hulls that made it easy to travel along the coastal waters. The shipwrights reworked the designs of these ships to better sail in the open waters of the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. The largest of these ships had upwards to nine masts with 12 battened silk sails. They sported pointed hulls, high prows, and keels at the bottom of the hull to increase stability. The lower deck was filled with ballast of stone and earth. Other decks were for living quarters, kitchens, and open spaces. Each was armed with two dozen cast bronze cannons. They also had watertight bulwark compartments. These ships have been estimated to be 400 feet in length and 160 feet wide. Columbus's largest ship, the Santa Maria, was only 85 feet long in comparison. In addition to the larger vessels, there was a number of other special ships, horse transports, supply ships, troop transports, water tankers, and ships designed specifically to combat pirates. Crews were composed of military officers, government officials, astrologers, translators, medical personnel, as well as regular seamen, soldiers, and craftsmen. Scholars estimate that the crew numbered from 20,000 to 30,000 individuals. Zhang He would lead seven expeditions, starting in 1405. The first voyage followed the traditional trading routes. The fleet followed the Chinese and Vietnamese coast, visited Sumatra and Java, made a stop at Malacca before crossing over to the Indian Ocean, and reached Calicut along the Malabar coast of India. On this mated voyage, the larger ships, called Baochuan, carried cargoes of silk, gold, iron, tea, wine, porcelain, ceramics, and other commodities. These were the great imperial treasure ships. At whatever port of call they stopped at, the fleet impressed the local rulers. Zhang He would declare China's peaceful intentions, offer goodwill, and then present rulers with an abundance of gifts. Rulers were invited either to come in person or send an emissary to the imperial court. Most rulers took Zhang He up on this offer, and the admiral accommodated several delegates to be taken back to China. The second voyage occurred in 1407, but was shorter in duration. A third voyage was undertaken in 1409 and followed the same routes of the first and second voyages, again reaching southwestern India. 
the fourth expedition would be more ambitious. This voyage began in January 1414, and it was destined for Hormuz on the Persian Gulf. During the outbound voyage, the fleet stopped in Sumatra, where Zheng He became involved in a local dispute. He helped dislodge a claimant from the throne and restore the rightful ruler. The usurper was sent to China to be executed. The incident asserted China's role in maintaining an international order and the emperor's own political legitimacy. At least 18 states from the Arabian Sea to Vietnam would send envoys to the Ming court in Nanjing. It would be the height of Ming power and influence in the region. While Zheng He lingered in Hormuz, he sent a small fleet to Bengal, now present-day Bangladesh. Here the Chinese encountered a giraffe for the first time. Animal had been presented to the ruler of Bengal by the East African Sultanate of Maladi. The Chinese were able to convince the Bengal ruler to part with the animal, and the giraffe was brought back to China. It was hailed in the imperial court as a unicorn and an omen of peace and prosperity. This seemed providential, considering the wealth of tribute Zhang He brought back from Arabia and India. The giraffe prompted a fifth voyage, this time to East Africa itself. This was done in 1417, and the great fleet visited several ports along the Somali and Swahili coasts of Africa. They encountered incense and amber, as well as a menagerie of exotic animals, lions, leopards, zebras, ostriches, rhinoceroses, and more giraffes. All these animals were brought back to China, where Yang Lo constructed a royal zoo to house them all. A sixth trip happened in 1421, mainly to escort all the envoys who had stayed in China back to their respective homes. Once again, the fleet split up in Sumatra. Part of it continued on to Hamuz, Dafur, Aden, and Mogadishu. Zhang He himself took the rest of the fleet back to China so he could attend the dedication of the Forbidden City in Beijing. In 1424, the young Lo Emperor died while on a military campaign against the Mongols in the north. His eldest son became emperor, but he was more inclined to heed the advice of his Confucian advisors. He suspended the treasure ship voyages, but the new emperor died the following year. Zhu Zhangji became emperor, and in 1430, he orders a seventh expedition. The final voyage, though, was more of a peacekeeping mission. The emperor wanted to mediate a dispute between Siam and Malacca. On the return trip, Zhang He died at sea in 1433. This would be the end of China's maritime dominance. The emperor put an end to the expeditions, banned further construction of ocean-going vessels, and prohibited 
going beyond China's coastal waters. A century later, all vestiges of the great treasure ships were gone. Through salvage and neglect, and mention of them removed from official records. So what happened? Why didn't China continue to exploit their position as a naval power? Why was it the Europeans who made the significant discoveries and ushered in a new age of globalization? These are questions that historians still grapple with. Part of the answer lies in the reasons the Ming Dynasty decided to discontinue the voyages. Though we will not know for certain, it was due to a number of different factors. In 2002, Gavin Menzies, a former submarine commander with the Royal Navy, presented an interesting premise. In his book, 1421, The Year China Discovered America, he claimed that Zheng He's sixth expedition made contact with the New World 70 years before Columbus. Most historians, though, have questioned his methodology and the general lack of evidence to support his argument. One of the main criticisms was that Menzies failed to address the major logistical obstacles and the opposition of the conservative Confucian worldview that discouraged such ventures. Yet even if one accepts the hypothesis that Zheng He discovered the New World, the question remains why China did not exploit the discovery, like the Europeans would eventually do. Part of the answer to this question, at least according to Ian Morris in his book Why the West Rules for Now, lies with geography. It is the story of two oceans, the Pacific and the Atlantic. Look at a world map, and you will see that the Atlantic Ocean is smaller than the Pacific. European explorers had a smaller distance to travel. Major trade winds and currents also favored the Europeans. Iceland and Greenland provided early fleets with convenient stopping points to refresh and resupply. In the Pacific, on the other hand, unlike the Atlantic, there are vast distances between such stops, and there is a greater amount of open ocean. Sustained voyages would have been too difficult for the Chinese at the time. Confronted with the obstacles of traveling across the Pacific Ocean, China had no motivation to attempt it. They had a thriving, profitable trade with their neighbors in Southeast Asia, the Korean Peninsula, and Japan. They also were preoccupied with the threats of the various tribes of the Central Asian steppes. Europe, on the other hand, saw older trade routes blocked with the fall of Constantinople and the rise of the Ottoman Empire. There was a high degree of motivation to find new sources of trade. And due to the fortune of geography, both Spain and Portugal were well situated to explore and exploit the Atlantic sea routes. As we have seen in a previous episode, 
This spurred innovation in shipbuilding and marine technology, thereby making the Atlantic crossing that much easier. The expeditions undertaken by Zhang He did not explicitly set out to discover anything. The routes they took were well-known and well-traveled for centuries. These were driven mainly by economics and politics, and both of these would contribute to their discontinuance. Despite the wealth of riches that flowed into China, the treasure fleets were costly to construct, maintain, and operate. Mongol threats intensified after the mid-15th century, and the Ming emperors turned their attention and resources towards this problem. Plus, in 1411, the renovation of the Grand Canal, which linked the two great rivers of China, the Yangtze and the Yellow, made the need to transport goods along the coast unnecessary. There was no economic need for great ocean-going vessels. At the same time, the emperors once more adhered to the policies of the Confucian scholar bureaucrats. These officials made up an entire social class and essentially ran the government. They were both the keepers of Confucian ideology as well as the knowledge base of the rituals, procedures, and processes that made the government function. They were conservative and tended to be suspicious of both the military and any foreign contact. For example, part of the Confucian view was that sons should not make distance voyages abroad while their parents were still alive. If they had to undertake such a voyage, it needed to be to a place that was known. Regardless of the reasons, China had missed an opportunity. They certainly had the resources and the technology, stern-mounted rudders, keeled hulls, maritime compasses, detailed nautical charts, to push out beyond the Indian Ocean Basin. Perhaps they would not have been able to reach the Americas, but at the least, they would have had the naval power to challenge the Portuguese, and even might have prevented European expansion into Southeast Asia. World history might have looked different. But of course China did none of this. Instead, they turned inward and isolated themselves, leaving a vacuum. A vacuum the Portuguese and the rest of Europe were more than happy to fill. In the next episode, we will take a detailed look at Vasco da Gama's historic voyage to India. Links to additional resources can be found in the episode description. Comments and feedback are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. Visit my blog at itakehistory.com and on Facebook at I Take History with My Coffee. If you know anyone who would also enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thank you for listening.